It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Celtics, your daily Celtics podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And I'm so, I'm so hyped right now. Anything's possible. Oh, my mama. Oh, my mama made it, ma. Anything's possible. Rainy days. Jump shot, fade away. This the best Celtics podcast day to day. I get excited about it like when Tatum play a Jalen on the breakaway, a Kyrie when he make a trade, and nothing like the terrible analysts on the TV. So in depth that after you play it, you gotta repeat. So in depth they might do an hour about the D League. So in depth you probably should pay him, but it's a freebie. Yeah, Corrales, Packard, and J. King locked on trying to get the 18th ring. And well wishes go to Gordy. Listen after every game is very important, Millie. Locked On Celtics Podcast with the Rainy Jays. Today it's me, your boy Jay King from The Athletic, joined by special guest Sean Grandy, the voice of the Boston Celtics. We had a fun chat, started with our recent Twitter beef, which was a real clash. Clash of the Titans, let me say. He really ripped my heart out, stomped on it, ruined me, and ruined my whole livelihood, (laughs) but... We had a great chat. We went on to talk about the Celtics season, Jason Tatum's stellar rookie year, Jalen Brown kind of being overshadowed, what to take away from the current Celtics season, and what to expect a little bit in the future. So I had a really fun time with Sean. He's always been someone who's worked out. I admired, obviously, as a kid growing up in New England. I listen to him on the radio. And it's still really cool to me as I talk to him a little bit that I'm able to talk to him at games and I'm able to have a relationship with him and he wants to come on my podcast. Those are all just really cool things to me. So I appreciate him. Just a note, we recorded this podcast the day after the Brian Colangelo story broke. So we probably joked about it a little bit more than we would have with some of the latest revelations uh so that's why the tenor of that part of the conversation is lighthearted as lighthearted as it is but without further ado here's the interview with the great sean grandy thanks for coming on the podcast man you didn't you didn't ask me more i mean my god i thought you worshiped me and yet i I do worship you i never get invited I do worship you, but you're a busy man. You know, I, I don't want to add to your the 12 sports you cover. Like you, not as busy as I was two days ago. This is true. This is true. All right, so let's get into this. Yeah, um, well. let, let's start with the, the Twitter stuff and the subscription model stuff um, because that is the reason why I asked you today on the podcast. So you tweeted just a joke at me uh, about – about my job, the athletic, you were coming back at me. I think I started off. So you, so you, I'll set the whole stage. I tweeted at you, or no, you, you tweeted a story. How long are you going to take to do this, man? I mean, my God, how hard is this? Not everybody. This has is your, this is why people come at you. Talent. This is why people <laughs> come at you, man. Not everybody has your beautiful radio talent. So you you tweet out your thoughts on the Celtics season, just about how much they've come back, how resilient they were, the type of season it was. I tweeted at you. Next time you want to share your thoughts, we can we can give you a guest post at the Athletic. And then you tweet back at me. Just a I, went, I went full Mannix. <laughs> full Mannix, death blow at the Athletic to the point where I wasn't sure whether you were serious or not. That that's how good it was. It was so good that I actually I messaged you privately to see whether you were serious. Um, but then it and you weren't. You were not serious. We're for those out there. We're, we're guys. We're tight. Um, but it kind of opened up a can of worms. That I don't know that that you realized you were getting into. Where some people hate the subscription model. Other people were mad at you for what you said. It was there was some vitriol on Twitter yesterday. 
And it's, you know, it's nothing compared to the vitriol that a lot of us see in, you know, in various circumstances. But I've tried to take the potential dumpster fire that Twitter can often become if you let it and say there's, there's, there can be great value in it. And I thought yesterday was kind of a, it was an interesting day. It was a learning day. And you really can't, nine times out of ten or more than that, somebody tweets something. And people get back at them and they get in trouble or whatever. I don't know. Let's say you have the number one TV show in the country and you act like a moron on Twitter. And then two hours later, your show is gone. Okay? <laughs> so, but what was interesting about yesterday was a lot of people. And you saw, I was, what I tapped into, and I, I did the same, you know, the same joke that, you know, we, we kind of do it, you know, Mannix does it and I do it. We all give each other grief all year. And I thought it was part of the subtext of it actually was, I was actually trying to poke you a little bit for being high and mighty and better than uh, those of us that don't get to, you know, that our, our services are free to the public, whereas to read the elite stuff that you do. Anyway, so it was, it was a funny, it was funny enough that there were three responses. It was the people that got it and thought it was funny. There were people that sort of didn't, that, that didn't get it and thought it wasn't funny. And so don't insult Jay like that. And then there was um, the biggest group of all, which really surprised me, were the people that thought I was, like, seriously making fun of or being negative towards subscription models. And that's what surprised me. I didn't realize that that was out there. Yeah. That's what I tapped into inadvertently that I I realized, wow, and then what you and I, it sparked a conversation that you and I had, and, you know, my girlfriend's in the the business too, and we talked for a while about it yesterday. I thought it was pretty interesting, and I, I kind of, it made me think, like what good can come out of this? Because clearly, we have not been trained as consumers to, uh, and you know, you you talked about APM fees that everybody pays. And I, I, the first thing I thought of was, if you bundled, like if your cable provider that also provides your internet, bundled a sports package in there for three bucks or five bucks or whatever a month, where you got some of these subscription sites, nobody would say a word. You wouldn't think about it. But we have not yet been trained. When we had a paywall on a thing, but to not be negative towards it and not say, oh, my God, there's this awesome thing. Let me pay. Because there are so many scams and so many crazy things on the Internet. I think we've all been trained that as soon as we something asks for our credit card number, it's not we go the other way or close the window. And I, that's what has to change. That's what I think people have to be retrained to, you know, to realize that you don't think about a subscription to a newspaper or a Sports Illustrated or whatever, but content that is invaluable your stuff aside, content, oh, yeah. that is, <laughs> content that is invaluable. You don't, you literally, it's falling under the heading of spam or whatever. There's a psychological thing that I think is a real, that's what has to be attacked. And I think for all of these models to become as successful as they should be, I, I'm not sure as an outsider, I'm not sure enough attention is being paid to, paid to that. So I thought, you know, some of these days are really useless, but you know full well. It's a yeah. minefield. Um, Particularly, if you're someone like me, who often gets in trouble, it's a, it's a dangerous time to have a sense of humor. It's a dangerous time to be a funny person. It's a dangerous time to be a quick-witted type, you know, a funny person like that. Also, because dangerous time to have five burner accounts. It's it's a, an unbelievable time to have five burner accounts. This might be the greatest story of all time. I, I texted <laughs> Jessica Camerato, who you know does a great job covering the Sixers and Houston yeah. itself as well. I texted her last night, like you get all the fun. Like, you get to cover Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and now you get this? My God, this is awesome. And, like, God, the parody and, the, you know, gifts that will come from it. It's just, this is the story. This is the gift that keeps on giving. We're yes, going on a tangent. I couldn't go to bed last night because oh, I didn't awesome. want to miss anything on Twitter. I was just scrolling but, through Twitter until, like, 2.30 a.m. Here's the, here's the beauty of pods that I get to go on and on, which I never do normally because usually there's a play going on. If I do this and during the games, there's five plays that I've missed. But there's a... You have to be – it's just not worth it any – like being funny sometimes. Like in case like yesterday, I thought it was, there was a lot of value to it, and everybody thought it was funny. Most people thought it was really funny, great. But there was a great example of the difference between even Twitter two years ago and the environment it's become now. So we're in one of the playoff cities. I don't know where it was, Milwaukee or Philadelphia, where we were, and I'm sitting there, I'm working, and my you know, Twitter's open and everything. And this is the difference between now and just a couple of years back. The story comes on Oliver North, right? I have CNN on because who doesn't watch football but every day? And CNN is on, and Oliver North is named the new president of the NRA. Okay, breaking news, whatever. So immediately the joke pops into my head, right? 
And I literally started to type it because that's sort of my re- the comedic reflex, especially because something just happened. And I, I stared at it for a second. And I said, you know what? It's just not worth it. Yeah, this is funny. People will like it. But I, do, I want the, do I want my mentions full of people who have no sense of humor or have no, you know, and it's just, it's, it's a different, it's a different world now. You have to be, and even, even like yesterday makes me realize the most innocent, innocuous of jokes. Like, is this worth, like yesterday was worth it because I think something good came out of it. But a lot of times now you got to ask, man, is this even, I was bummed out about my Oliver North joke too. Yeah, and it, it's it's funny because R.I.P. your Oliver North joke, by the way. Um, but it's it's funny because I didn't know the type of you know you can ask me on the podcast what the joke was. Okay, I'm, well, I'm well, the joke. Let, let's hear the joke now. You, I, well, remember this is real time, so it's just happened, right? And you know you're probably not even old enough to get it because that's the other part you have to be careful of on Twitter. So, but you know Oliver North named president of the NRA, and immediately the first thought is that's great because you want the president of the NRA, you don't want someone who's going to have guns end up in the wrong hand. You know, which, plus, if you're a historian, you understand Oliver North and the Iran Contra hearings. I'm, I'm not so, much of a historian unless it's NBA. In yeah. any case, he sold guns to, <laughs> you know. So, anyway, this is the point. And that's the other thing. That's another perfect example. How many times during a year do you think I have to say after something Max says? I mean, it's become literally uh, the catchphrase on our show is Google it, kids. Because they'll say, <laughs> I, I'm painfully aware, and we joke about it all the time, I'm painfully aware of my age. And just the, you know, trying to be relevant when you have a job, my job is I'm not 45 to 54. I'm not appealing to 25 to 30. I have kids listening. I've got 80-year-olds listening. So you have this huge net. And so pop culture, any kind of references are dangerous. But you can sound old quickly if you're not constantly. So I'm always aware of it. And then Max will say something about some TV show from the 60s, and I'm like, do you have any idea how old? Like, if you sound old to me, imagine how old that is in real life. And so Google It Kids has become a, a best so, phrase. So, sometimes you got to Google it. For me, for mm-hmm. me, just subscribe to it is, is my new phrase because I, I like that. I, <laughs> I think – you, you, think, you think Colangelo – see, here's how you guys uh, – the others have done a subscription model is you get someone like Colangelo, maybe he needs to subscribe five times. Ooh. And maybe you can – you know, maybe each account needs one. And... Yeah, that that should be how we how we juice the numbers from now on. <laughs> All right, let, let's get into the Celtics season a little bit. NFL teams making bold final moves before the start of the season. From our local experts to your ears, these are the biggest stories on the Locked On Podcast Network. The Tennessee Titans have announced a one-year deal with linebacker Jadavion Clowney, reportedly worth $15 million. Tyler Rowland of Locked On Titans tells you if it's going to be enough to get Tennessee back to the AFC title game. In other moves around the league, the Miami Dolphins named Ryan Fitzpatrick starting quarterback, which means Tua will be back up for the time being. And the Detroit Lions have agreed to a one-year deal with running back Adrian Peterson. Peterson was released by the Washington football team last Friday. For more NFL news and analysis, subscribe to the new Peacock and Williamson NFL show and listen to a brand new lineup on Locked On NFL. They'll have division previews every day this week. Local experts on the biggest stories, it's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You're up to date on your favorite team, but what about the competition? Hollinger and Nate Duncan are evaluating every bubble contender on Hollinger and Duncan. Rejecting the screen goes behind the scenes with in-depth interviews and the Locked On NBA podcast is recapping games daily. Let the Locked On NBA network of podcasts take care of your NBA bubble scouting reports. Hollinger and Duncan rejecting the screen, the Locked On NBA podcast. Subscribe to the best trio of NBA podcasts on the planet wherever you get your podcasts. Because they did have a great season and it didn't end the way anyone wanted it to, anyone in Boston at least. But I'm curious, for you uh, as a radio announcer, do you get drawn to some of the teams? Like, are there some years you're like, oh, man, I kind of can't wait for this to be over, and there are other years – you just kind of get really intrigued by the team and appreciate the resilience? Because I don't think you've given thoughts like that like you did on Twitter 
every year. So obviously this team kind of spoke to you a little bit. It's a great question. And um, I, I've, I've explained it a lot. Like I literally sat here on Sunday night, and this is 20 years for me in the league now. And you know, I don't ever remember a time where, I thought, man, I wish this was over. This is, I mean, this is your, you know, this is my job. This is what I do. And obviously towards the end of the year, the games are bigger. And that's when you're really trying to deliver for fans and, and make these moments and, and make them last forever. So you're really engaged and it's great. I don't ever remember a time where I was like, hey, I can't wait till this is over. But on the other side of that, in 2011, you know, like for example, like Miami was a better team. In 2010, yeah, the seventh game, I mean, that's probably the closest thing to it. In 2010, I really thought the Lakers were a better team in 2010. And I, re- I had also, before the series, said the Lakers would win in seven. So nothing surprised me as it unfolded. I remember just being genuinely excited to call a seventh game to be a part of the history. And Doris Burke was sitting next to me. This is my game, quote, game seven aside in 2010. And she goes to interview Doc at the end of the first quarter, and they pass out the stat sheets. And I flipped hers over, and I just drew two circles. And when she came back, she sat down, looked down, and saw the circles. And one, the big circle I had written world, and then the little dot in the middle I wrote us. Because we were just, during that series, Doris and I were like kicking each other out of the table like 10-year-olds. Like, do you believe we're like we're sitting courtside here for game seven of the NBA Finals? But in, two, in 2012, listen, that, that was history. You knew that was LeBron's time, and it was time for the, you know, the torch to be passed or whatever. So every year has its own thing, and you're like, yeah, it kind of makes sense. It kind of gets it. You know, it, it fits. And that's why I could not believe. I got home Sunday night. I lived about a mile from the garden, and I walk home. And, you know, my son was with his mother, so I was all by myself. And I, just, I sat here, and I was, I was literally, like, down about it. I felt bad. And I finally, it took me a while to realize what I wrote, which is that it was one thing. We talked about this irrational confidence and how they, you know, they believed they were actually going to do this thing. You know, some teams do that, but they, believe, but they made us believe it to the point where we were genuinely surprised. And I think that combined with the fact that it was almost a, to lose the way they lost was sort of a betrayal of the season they had had because they had won games like that all year. And it'd be one thing if the Cavs scored 120 points and LeBron scored 68, but it was another to have a game that were all that, you know, now you got to go all summer. All they had to do is shoot 28% from three. You know, you have a regular <laughs> night. So, it's like I said, it kind of betrayed all year long that they stole games like that from other teams. But it was sort and, of it was sort of the way they were destined to lose, I felt like, at the same time. Like, maybe it was a betrayal of everything they'd done to get there, but also they were never going to throw a defensive dud in a big game. That just wasn't no. going to happen. They were going to play great defense no matter what. So if they were going to lose, it was going to be because their <laughs> offense just couldn't hold up. I mean, I think that's true, and I think what will be forgotten in history is that that was 101 games of the number one defensive team in the NBA, and that was probably a top-five performance defensively. That was one of the elite games that the best defensive team in the league played all year, but nobody will remember that. LeBron, LeBron, he got the second guy, which I guess you know, I can tell you this. I, this will be podcast, you know, uh, not, not really news or anything, but Doc Rivers and I were literally texting during the game during game seven, like as I'm calling it, Doc and I are texting back and forth. And, and as you can imagine, the irony of Jeff Green having the big game in Boston was quite the topic, <laughs> you know, between us. But if you had said before, that was the big topic, right? Well, if he gets any help, if he gets that second guy, the Cavs are going to win this game. And he got the second guy, LeBron, LeBron, and yet still, it was absolutely there for the uh, there for the taking. But I, what I referenced, and at first I thought about, as it was happening, and then I talked to Brad, you know, after in his office, and we talked about the UConn, the loss of UConn in the second national championship game when they just could not make a shot. They scored, what, 30-something points, Butler did. And then it, it, that made me think when I was just sitting here trying to think of something that I wasn't planning on writing anything. I don't normally do that. I'm just like, I think everybody else, if everybody's half as depressed as I am, um, <laughs> everyone is really, like, bummed. I mean, this is, it, was, it just felt bad, but it just felt terrible. Even now, like walking around doing like normal stuff in Boston today, like going to, going to the gym or going wherever, everyone's like, because you know normally I just light up a room and everyone is just thrilled to see me. But you know, no one no one wants to see me. No one wants to see me today because I'm supposed to be in San Francisco. They're like, hey, uh, hey, you know, You're like, like it's just you son of a bitch. I'm not supposed to be right. I'm not supposed to be here, but yeah, it really it it kind of bummed me out. And then I thought, from afar, we all watched Gordon Hayward almost hit that shot against Duke eight years ago. The yeah. Celtics were in New York. That was the night before the infamous Earl Barron game 
when Earl Barron had 19 rebounds, and it was one of those games the Celtics just, whatever the word we choose to tank or whatever, those 2010 games when they had that horrendous second half of the year and they just got beaten by the Knicks in New York. There were these awful games, the Andre Blotch game, whatever. But the night before that Earl Barron game was that championship game. We were in New York. And I remember watching, and then we all watched, you know, Gordon Hayward and Brad Stevens, these Butler guys, do these interviews, and they were devastated. And from afar, you're like, are you kidding me? Dude, you came an inch away from the greatest win of all time. It's the most amazing story ever. Well, now you know how they felt. <laughs> I mean, of course it made no sense. Of course the Celtics, the Celtics had every business being in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals when the season started. And five minutes into the season, they had no business being there and never did, particularly after they lost Kyrie and whatever. And it was an amazing accomplishment. Everyone should, you know, appreciate it. But they sucked us all in, and they made us believe. So when when you give something your heart, yeah, that's why it got broken on Sunday. There's there's no doubt. And, and, and the country just does not want the country does not want to see the Buffalo Bills back in the Super Bowl for the fourth time. <laughs> yeah, that's going to end badly. That is. That is not going to be a close series. But this is the first time that one of Brad's teams in the NBA was good enough to get its heart broken. You know, every year in the past, yeah, it, had been, it had been like last year was just a landslide in the conference finals. The, the year, year before, first round exit. Year before, first round exit. So th- this is the first time they've been good enough. And then there's the promise of next year, which is, for as, as special as this year was, the fact that you could get to a conference finals game seven, almost eliminate LeBron for the first time in the East since 2010, which is crazy. Like Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett were the last team to beat LeBron James in the Eastern Conference playoffs. That's, that's insane to me. Those guys have been – and they were with the Celtics still. It wasn't – that that just boggles my mind. But the the – to get that far and then to wake up the next morning and be like, okay, like that sucks. But <laughs> next year we're getting Kyrie and Gordon Hayward back. And, oh, by the way, Jason Tatum, who just had maybe the right. best playoff series ever by a person his – playoff run ever by a person his age is going to be a year older. And Jayla Brown, who is just about as good as Tatum, is going to be a year older. And, oh, by the way, they'll fit perfectly with Hayward and Horford next year. It's – it's crazy. It really is kind of insane how well the Celtics are built for the future. And the only asterisk on it, and it's all true, and there are 20, I don't know how many other teams would rather be the Celtics right now. I don't know if the number is 26, 27, 20. I mean, clearly it is what we think it is. You know, they are who we say that they are. The only asterisk to it, and again, this goes with the sadness of Sunday night and, and the morning this week, and then as the couple, I'll tell you, I didn't even. I watched it. I I woke up Monday. I'm like I, I wasn't. I didn't even want to watch Golden State. I did by the time the night you know, the day got through. But I was like, I don't even feel like watching that game. But here's the asterisk. There's an innocence about this team that you know did this extraordinary thing, which is to make a place for itself. In I think what I wrote was it made a place for itself in the history of a team that's had 17 others cross the finish line first, and that's pretty amazing. Here's the only attached to that next year if everything is the innocence is gone and the extraordinary expectations are going to be there so you know what it will be like if the Celtics stays let's say they start 11 and 9 okay which a lot of new pieces coming back figuring it all out who knows how you know it's going to take Gordon a while all these things maybe they start 18 and 2 but maybe they don't and now you're in a, a completely different place. You go to game seven in the first round against Milwaukee or whoever it is, you know, next year, it's a completely different feel to it. The biggest pressure game the Celtics played in the new big three era, biggest pressure game, and it's not close, was game seven against Atlanta in the first round because of the consequences of losing. Because of the pre- and that was the first year that the, I had the expectations, expectations, not results expectations might be higher for the Celtics next year than they were for the Celtics going into the 07-08 season. Because if you remember, the feeling was, wow, this is amazing, but Rondo and Perk were still very young and unproven. The feeling was the Celtics were better in 09 than they were going to be in 08. And, you know, Cleveland was coming off a a great season. They had, you know, gone to the the finals. Uh, Detroit obviously was very good. 
So the feeling was the Celtics would be good, but nobody at the start of 07-08 said the Celtics are this is this team's going to win the championship this year. Whereas right now, depending on what LeBron decides to do and how the pieces fall around him, I mean, there's going to be magazine covers and expectations through the roof, and so the, the innocence will be gone. And that's the only. I mean, that's great. Brad, yeah, I guarantee you. I'll tell you, give you Brad's press conference right now. Oh, we want it. We want the expectations. They're great. It's part of the whip. And that's fine. But it does create that. It's going to be hard to exceed expectations next year, I guess is the point. It will, I imagine if they have gotten to the finals this year and then Kyrie and Hayward get back, and the right. only way they can beat that is to beat the Warriors in the finals. Ty Lue and David Blatt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ty Lue had to win, had to win the championship. They he had better to. than David Blatt. And, you know. I Ty, Ty Lue did not get here. I mean, I'm, I'm biased to Ty Lue and obviously Mike Longobardi and James Posey, obviously, because I've known him for a long time. But it was really fun. You know, when Brad was battling all that genius Brad stuff, which obviously I told him personally, I said, you're going to have to deal with it. It's going to, you know, stop winning then. You know, <laughs> if you don't if you don't like it, it's tough. But, you know, you go, you, the, the Cavs make the adjustments and they win game three and nobody says a word, you know, nobody says a word. Never. Ty Lue didn't get any credit for that. And that's that's the thing. You get LeBron, you have to be in the finals. And I get it. But and I, I think, a, I think the, the Stevens thing, all the credit he gets, next year he'll be under more scrutiny. Because, sure. because now he has a team that's expected to win. Mm-hmm. To, until now, he's never had a team that's been expected to win. You know, and, every, and maybe, every run he's made was unexpected to an extent. Right. Like making the playoffs the first year, Unexpected, winning forty-eight games or whatever the second year with Isaiah, unexpected. Getting the one seed, unexpected. This year, maybe we maybe oh, we yeah. say this out loud. Maybe we say this out loud so it to jinx it from happening. But the only the only asterisk on that is if something like this happens again with the injuries and you know whatever yeah. the Kyrie surgery didn't work or the whatever. So that's you know you keep saying we just assume now we're in this place where we just think that. Tatum and Hayward and Kyrie are going to play 80 games and whatever. And maybe they, you know, knock on whatever. Maybe they will. But obviously there's a – either way, the expectations will be crazy. And that's great. I mean, there will be no – we knew this in November. We knew this the minute Gordon got hurt and they started winning all the games. Everybody was saying, well, you know, wait till next year, wait till next year. Yeah, and they didn't want to wait till next year. They they never wanted to wait till next year. Don't you think, though, yeah, this is what I, the answer I gave, and obviously we do a ton of these conversations for every talking to people all over the country during the run. The only thing I said is this. It was amazing what they did in every possible way. But 10 years from now, we will look back maybe and say, well, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are multiple-time All-Stars. You know, Al Horford was in the prime of his career. Of course that team went to the conference finals in 2018. It's just that we haven't caught up yet. To, it's the same with people. There are still the, the the LeBron people that don't somehow their brains refuse to accept that he either is the greatest of all time or is in that final group of two or three or four guys or whatever it is. And there's some people that just won't accept it yet because they can't. I call it shuffling the deck of the present into the past and making it all fit. Our brains and our eyes, even though we were seeing Jason Tatum do what he was doing, we still kept saying he's 19, 20 years old. Jalen Brown is 21. I thought, I don't know if you're with me on this, I thought Jalen's season was as overlooked as it could possibly be in the profile of the Celtics. And that's because of Tatum. Because Tatum did what he did early. And because it was a Kyrie Irving out war for the Gordon Hayward injury thing. It was Jalen's year one to year two jump was if he was on a team with nothing else happening, you know, he would have gotten the, you know, the, did Oladipo have a – Oladipo was amazing. Did Oladipo have a bigger jump from where he was last year to where that's he was good, this year than Jalen Brown? That's a question. I'm, I'm not sure. So, Jalen was obviously a lower place last year than Oladipo. Right. Right. Uh, like, I remember Jalen Brown starting a game in New York, and he screwed up literally the very first play. Yeah. <laughs> and Brad, Brad yanked him after like 10 seconds. Yeah. Yep. Brad yeah. was like, you're done, kid. I love those those mad Brad moments of the past. Those <laughs> early time, those early third quarter. How many? Go back and look. How many of those timeouts within the first minute in the third quarter? Yeah, and the Celtics, yeah. Celtics came out a lot like the Anthony Warriors, you know, because Golden State is that third quarter team. The Celtics had a lot of nights where they come out at halftime 
and it was you know Brad would call timeout within a minute. Yeah, with like, like 10, 10 minutes, 42 seconds left in the third. But, yeah. but Jalen, it wasn't just the physical aspect of the game where he got better, like the three-point shooting and all that. The mental aspect of the game yeah. was night and day. He just, especially defensively, he just, he was locked in. He became one of the better defenders, really, in the league. Like, you know, last year you could see he was going to be a good defender, but he wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he, he just wasn't. It's like, oh, you can see it. You can see, oh, he's going to be this. He's gonna, yeah, he's going to be. But he's not right now. He was not a good defender last year as a rookie. And he just went, you know, he just became what he became. And I guess we'll, ne- you know, we'll never know what the Gordon injury did as far as those two develop, you know, being where they are now. Are they where they are now if Gordon is healthy and plays 32 minutes a game all year? You know, I, I, I don't, I don't, so. I don't know. How to, probably not. Who knows how to answer that? But it's, it's, it's funny because Brad has always talked in the past about how development for them is mostly behind the scenes. And yeah. I wondered I wondered now if, if he would admit that he's changed his mind about that a little bit, mm-hmm. seeing how Tatum and Brown developed with their additional responsibilities. Because so he's always said, like, with the younger guys, like, you may not see it, but they're developing behind the scenes. But with Tatum Brown, I really do think becoming – they needed to be stars, especially once Kyrie went down. They needed to be the two leading scorers, and they needed to guard great players defensively, and they needed to carry a burden that players that age, especially in the playoffs, just never, ever, ever have to carry. Like, they were literally the first duo – their age in NBA history to average, I think, 17-plus points a game each in an NBA playoff run. And yeah, the fact know, that I'm, they almost reached the finals is on top of it is Yeah, there was, it's funny. There was that really young team where around 2005, 2006, when the, when the Bulls were starting that rise, right, like even before they got Derrick Rose. Um, you could, they were putting together those, you know, Heinrich and Noah, and they were playing a core that was really young. Like, and that was 22-23. And you realize that Tatum, you know, Jason Jalen are significantly younger, and it's just there. There's a character to them. Obviously, Jalen is just I, one of the best things about him becoming a star player in the league, which hopefully he will. Is you know the exposure that people are going to get to him, the person. And you know, it's it's funny. One of the great articles of the year was written in, in London in the Telegraph. Yeah. You know, because it's so and it was part of Jalen being overlooked because uh, you know Tatum was this big story, and here's Kyrie Irving every night. Here's you know whatever, and. I think people were like, whoa, because they didn't, they just genuinely didn't realize, you know, what this, what this kid is about. It's it's just such a fun, yeah, throw Aaron Baines in the mix. Like, it's going to be, this is going to be a difficult locker room to top. Celtics might win the next four championships, but if this group doesn't stay together, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's really, this is part of the, part of the reason that they, that they drew people in. Do you expect big changes or no? You just think Danny I, I don't. I, I think what what would make me nervous from a you know Max and I on the era we've already started every you know during every game whenever he'd make a play specific to him, you know Max and I would pull out our wallets and start you know the Marcus Smart magic <laughs> you know restricted free agent fund, you know like you know five bucks at a time or whatever. And that you know, my concern, uh, which I voiced quite a bit, is that here's how the summer works: LeBron's going to do what he's going to do, and then Kawhi and the dominoes start to fall. There's a bunch of teams that have money, and invariably the music stops, and LeBron's going to be here, and Kawhi's going to be here, and Paul George's going to do what he's going to do. And there's going to be some teams that have money left. As you know, the new trend now is going to be towards these J.J., in my view, is going to be towards these J.J. Redick deals, these one-year deals for big money, you know. Uh, So I think there's a significant possibility, I'm looking at you, Indiana, if somebody is going to like miss out and is going to throw a lot of money at Marcus Smart. So to me, I, I don't care what it, you know, I, I think, you know, my guy, my guy Bill Simmons at one point during one of these playoff games just uh, tweeted all caps, you know, paid Marcus Smart the Supermax. You know, I think you have, you have moments like that. So that would be my only concern. Uh, people kind of, well, what about Rozier and this? I'm like, I, and now we can talk about it. But when people would do that on the day of a like game three of the Eastern Conference Finals, 
Like, could we enjoy the – like, can you guys be in the moment for one second and not worry about what's going to happen with Terry Rozier and Marcus Smart and next summer or the summer after? Like, that's what the offense – my God. These are the problems you have. And on the day of the conference finals, this is what uh, this is what people want to talk about. Um, so I do not expect big changes. I have said that before and have been surprised by the boss. You know, who yeah, but obviously I, I, make, think, I think they're finally comfortable with – Sense, in the sense that they think they're a championship contender if they're all healthy. Yeah. Be- before, I don't think they thought that. They definitely didn't think that, obviously. Uh, they weren't. But now, you know, I, I think they really believe in Tatum and Brown. Obviously, they believe in Kyrie and Hayward and Horford. And the fi- those five guys together could be just totally unstoppable. Yep. But part of this year, and, you know, Danny is like, it's hard to imagine for all of the – I think the praise – but Brad gets everything he deserves. It's all great. But I think the percentage of Brad, and I think a lot of the Brad stuff was just lazy in terms of national media because it was not yet the, the, without Hayward and Kyrie. Where's the sex appeal? You know, Al Horford is. Yeah, and so, I don't think people realize how talented this team was either. And how, exactly right. And but there's no I mean, there's no there like where is the you know where's the, where's the NBA sex appeal? So you knew. I remember saying weeks ahead of time telegraphing you could see how they were going to pit this as Brad against LeBron because yeah. Brad becomes the signature when there's nothing, there's no there there that becomes the lazy way to sort of do it. But with all the people that got overshadowed by Brad, and obviously he's sensitive about it because players get overlooked and that's not, not Brad's fault, but is the year that Danny had yeah. gets very little conversation for the Daniel Tyson's and the Shane Larkins and the Marcus Morris's and the, you know, it's amazing. This is why this team won 55 games. Is is the con- Aaron Baines? Say what you want about the wonkiness of the the stat. Aaron Baines led the NBA in defensive rating. Led the NBA in defensive rating, and you watch him, and you see why it's not a fluke. And then he started knocking down. You know, he started going Kyle Korver towards the end of the playoffs and just shooting yeah, crazy. I mean, cor- you know, corner threes. It's an amazing year he had. When you look move by move, Ainge hit a home run with almost everything. So the Kyrie trade, in retrospect, especially given how I I hope Isaiah gets healthy again, but the the way he was injury wise, that was a home run. The Gordon Hayward thing, obviously, you pick up Gordon Hayward in free agency, money move. He hit on all the little moves, the Tyson and the Larkins, and then the Tatum thing was just a heist. It was a hype. Yeah. I I still believe in Markel Fultz. I still think I did too. He, he's I did going too. to find it and become a really good NBA player, if not a many time All Star. But even if he does, like Tatum, Tatum's going to be the same or better, and you got an extra pick for him. <laughs> like yeah. there wasn't one move Ainge made that backfired. Not a single one. Yeah, he's on on you know. He's on quite a roll, and you get, I mean, I'm sure you get it because I do from time to time. There are a few people, you probably know some of the, the Twitter handlings, and maybe some of them now we know today are actually Brian Colangelo, who are like Danny Ainge haters, you know, on, on Twitter, and we'll be like, oh, Ainge's done this and Ainge's done that, and they'll bring up like, uh, you know, the, the, the late Fab Mello, and they'll bring up these things, and it's like, okay, if you want to criticize Danny Ainge, let's look at the 15-year body of work and all the draft picks he's had. So now you want to bring up Gabe Pruitt to me, okay. But then let's bring up the fact that uh, let's criticize Mookie Betts for the 58% of the time he does not get on base. Like, yeah. right, he's still better than everybody else on the planet, but okay, yeah, he, he failed <laughs> to get on base 58% of the time. Uh, I used to use Miguel Cabrera with that. But well, I, I, to Mookie Betts. I think the last couple of years have swung the pendulum way the other way, too. No, I, w- I would think, but it's just amazing to me. Uh, yeah, you get a lot less of it. But, you know, even early on, he, when he was hitting, what the Celtics did, and now you see the difference. When you have Tatum and Jalen Brown, you understand what Danny was up against the first 10 years, never picking high. Yeah. I, I remember I did a hit on, on Comcast with NBC Boston now, and I, I made my own because, you know, I bring my own graphics, you know that. And I made a list of, this is like 2006, 2007, and I made a list, three all-star teams, NBA players, and it was like LeBron James and Stoudemire and – Whoever, you know, think of the top players. Top players that came into the league in 05, 06, LaMarcus Aldridge and 
Kirk Heinrich and all these, you know, you made, I made like a list of 15 guys. Now, now what do they all have in common? They were all had become elite players in the NBA. And what they all had in common was the Celtics couldn't have drafted any of them because they weren't picking high enough. And this is what happened because the Celtics made the playoffs four years in a row, 02, 03, 04, 05. So he never had these picks. Never had them. Yeah. And so, you know, eventually he figured out a way to get them despite winning. But and he really got the right guy difficult. each time. Yeah. He got right. the right and that's guy. The, and even when he was picking low, he got Delonte West and Tony Allen very late in the first round. He got Big Baby in the second round. He got Ryan Golden in the second round. And even you know, Kelly, Kelly Olenek at the end of the Kelly. lottery, I, I know people wanted Giannis, but that was Giannis, a good pick. Yeah. Jared, Jared Sullinger in the 20s for the value they got out of him for four years. That was a good pick, even though obviously he didn't reach his potential. You look at, I mean, just a load of draft picks. And obviously there, there are the swings and misses, the R.J. Hunters, the James Youngs, the Fab Mellows. Everybody uh, has them. But, now that we, yeah. And actually, now that we're looking at this body of work and we know the series that George Hill had, should we be examining Chipotle as maybe being something even more than <laughs> even more than meets the eye. Chipotle, yeah, maybe maybe. I like how Danny food. Danny shows off that card. Like he can get like, you don't need free burritos. Like, dude, you're good. Like a lot of us, if you can get free real burritos, credit card damage at Chipotle. You got you got to get your free burritos though. I mean, I think he's a little sad. He only gets one free burrito per day though. Yeah, I'm I wonder if he pushed it. I bet he'd be okay. Like, there's like somebody behind the counter. Like, I'm sorry, sir. Yeah, I, I, I think he'd be all right. You know, there's probably one person that's like, I'm sorry, what's this card? I've never seen. <laughs> Too far. Yeah, and then he pulls up the ESPN article. He's like, Well, he, here, here's what this is about. <laughs> uh, I forget who wrote it. Wasn't Ryan Whitaker? Somebody wrote a piece about. Like the top ten restaurants for NBA players, the top ten food spot, and it was like the best thing I'd ever seen written about the NBA. It was so outrageously accurate that Chipotle is a serious go. It's not just the NBA too; it's the NHL. It's Wasn't like, like Cheesecake Factory up there too? Yep, Cheesecake Factory is on that list. Absolutely. I mean, it was it was like the best, the most accurate NBA article I think I'd ever seen ever. Um, you know, <laughs> obviously the, the steak, you have the high end steakhouses that are confident because that that's comfort food when you make a lot of money. That's comfort food because you can go to a different city and, you know, it's going to be there. Cheesecake Factory is going to be there. Chipotle is going to be there. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's a, we're all, it's a strange, you know, listen, it's a very strange life that we all lead where you desperately seek that kind of thing when you don't have days of the week and you don't have a regular anything re- remotely resembling a normal life. Like things like comfort food, and it, there's there's greater value to it when you don't work nine to five, you don't know when you're going to sleep, and you don't know what city you're in. And you wake up in the morning like, wait, wait am I in? You know, like, where did we fly to last night? There's there's more a lot more value in that. Chris Forsberg will sometimes pick his hotels based on where the Chipotle's are. <laughs> I would, I mean, and my I, I try to stay away from being like the old dad who gives advice, but my advice to you would be to not use Chris Forsberg as any sort of <laughs> Jedi, uh, you know, life coach sort of, <laughs> you know, direction. Whatever. All right. I, I, before I let you go, I've got one question for you. Now, this, this is an important question to me. How did I become the guy that everyone takes fun, good-natured shots at on Twitter? Great how question. Did I, how did I become I, that guy? I don't know. I think I think there's just something so um, so lovable uh, about you that <laughs> yeah. it just it becomes you know it just becomes too easy. I think it's you know I think it probably is uh, probably a deeper look into the you know the insecurities of all of us that do it. Um, probably somehow like what what deficiency <laughs> is it? How are we so threatened by you that? you become this moving... T- yeah. I don't know. Everyone's I, so one of those threatened. Things. Now we have time to sort of, you know, time to sort of ponder this. This is the other thing that people don't realize is that people ask me, so what are you doing now? I'm like, well, today, I'm not doing that, like anything because you can't plan. Like this you two weeks, you can, with the exception of Mike Gorman's daughter getting married, and man, he was sweating that out for a while. Like, you know, that was going to become a thing after a while. You know, with three, three off days to write about stuff. Mike Gorman, B, B, not, B-Rob not had a wedding up. to go to, too. B-Rob was going to fly from Boston to Golden State or Houston, and then like, he was going to go back and forth go back for a wedding, wedding during but, the finals if he had to. 
you know, Mike, Mike Gorman scheduled his daughter's wedding during the NBA Finals. Like, how's that for a not, you know? Gorman, come on. You got to no, know about that. I, that's, and that's the thing. Jeff Van Gundy, now Jeff was, you know, Jeff was like, we were all three of us talking. Jeff's trying to figure out if he can get there or whatever, and, you know, where it is in between games. And I'm like, that's a self-inflicted wound right there. Like, don't, I mean. Yeah. I'm There's, telling you, people would have would have read it. it was like, you know, right after game six of the final. Like, wow. <laughs> I literally had a trip with my son. This is how absurd the season was. And I'm going to take my son. My son couldn't come to Chicago this year on the uh, trip, which is probably good because that trip started with us flying to Houston through the bomb cyclone um, in uh, in early March. That was one of the most, you know, of I've had 20 years of adventures on charter flights. But that was at or near the top of the list uh, that do you remember that? Did you fly? You guys fly commercial down to Houston? Before? Yeah. So, so I've never had any issues with that, but I saw some of the tweets from the people flying on the charter flight. Well, uh, I'll, I'll, let, you, like I'll a let you. Petrifying flight. I'm generally. I mean, I don't like to see. It's a plane to me. I'm flying up over years. It's like the locker room to me. It's like a. You know, I know people tweet from there, or whatever, and obviously, I, I, I don't think it's white. White. I don't think it's. I think it's part of the locker room. I think it's part of whatever. But I will share. This, I, will, I will share this story. Um, generally speaking, the pilot on the charter flight, he doesn't, the pilots don't talk to us. That's not like a regular commercial flight. We're like, hey, look, the Grand Canyon's over there. We're going to do this. <laughs> and we're gonna do, like, they, don't, they, don't, they don't do that. We generally don't hear from them. So when the pilot comes on, and first of all, your attention right away is like, oh, well, I'm sorry, the pilot's talking to us, which means something's unusual. And listen, you were looking outside of the luggage carts, the big, heavy, you know, 800-pound luggage carts are getting tipped over here. It's a cyclone. And they think we're flying through this. So the pilot comes on. We're like, what are we going to do? And this is literally what he said. Word for word, I wrote it down to save it for my archives and, like, texted it to people for when this plane got blown into oblivion because we were going to try to take off in the cycle. Uh, this was the actual quote. We talked about, you, you know, you guys have all seen the weather. You know what's going on outside. Uh, so let me just tell you, and this is the quote, Mother Nature is going to have her way with us for the first five to ten minutes. Jesus. That was literally, and that was the reass- that was the reassuring. That was the quote. Now, anyone that has ever been in bad turbulence knows, fifteen seconds of bad turbulence is a long time. Yeah. That's a long time. Five to ten minutes of that. That's not. And that's like when the pilots sometimes the pilots don't even tell you when it's going to be bad. Warning ahead of time with the first five or ten minutes. The opposite, you know, we made it. it. I don't think it was ten minutes because ten minutes, I'm not sure anybody psychologically would have made it. But it was up there. The two all time. The one, the other one I'll save from my book was the famous, uh, the one during the championship season when we we got we took two lightning strikes um, after the Celtics ended the Houston winning streak, and they swept the Texas Triangle. In the middle of that was the you know the flight from hell that everybody remembers. We flew from Houston to Dallas, and it was every everybody who was on that flight remembers it. But yeah, this was. Uh, this is up there. Anyway, this is a long side story to say. So my son didn't come on the first trip to Chicago, so I rescheduled one for, like, I think next for what's next weekend now. Like, the Revolution are going to be in Chicago and the Cubs are home, so I rescheduled it then. And about two weeks ago, I was sitting there like, well, I've got to make a plane reservation. And I looked at the dates, and I'm like, I can't do that. I literally can't commit because the Celtics are still playing and could be in the finals. Like, there's a legitimate chance they're going to be in the finals, so you can't. It was yeah. just amazing. That you know, we're joking about Mike's daughter's wedding, but this was—we literally could not make plans because this team was just defying everything we knew. And it was, make the plans in August. That's that's yeah. what I've learned. Make them yeah, all in August. But it was—I mean—that that ties back to the, the thing that I wrote. I think it was a really special, a special year. It was—you know—it was special for me too. A lot of people know that I had kind of a tough choice to make last summer because I'd been working two full-time jobs and just killing myself for a couple of years, and I had to choose one. It was not. It was not a cut and dry, easy choice. Um, but obviously, when you have a year like this, and you, know, you have the fans, you know, so attached. Um, Celtics fans you know, are lucky you, you chose Boston, man. Well, I, I appreciate that, but it was sure. just, you know, it was. Uh, I think we all get, you know, you, especially when you're younger, you think, well, this job pays more than this job, so I have to take a job that pays more. And you know, the older you get, you realize that's not. It's not everything, and it's uh, you know you're, you're part of something here, and it's it's pretty cool. Like Max and I, you just don't realize like that's, that's a lot of time gone by. We're talking about the '02 series with the Nets, you know, in the conference finals. And people are looking at you like, man, that's like ancient history. Like Max and I were together; that was our first year. So time uh, 
time is a way of going by and you get sort of, you know, ingrained in it. And the institutional memory that comes with it and become part of the furniture. And uh, it's yeah. uh, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool every year to, uh, you know, to hear from people that have been listening for a while. And, and look, I'm, I'm one of those, man. Like, it, to, to me, it's still so cool to me that I see you at games, that you know who I am, that you'll come on my podcast. Like, I, I grew up listening to you. And See, that's maybe the kind I, of thing I, people I, say to make me feel old. I, I was just gonna say I hope that makes you feel really old. Here. I hope that makes you feel really old. But but like you were you were always the voice of the Celtics. And the fact that, that I can talk to you and you know me and you take shots at me on Twitter, that that's really, really cool to me. And I don't I don't take that for granted. It really is that's special to me. And that's well, that's one of the things that, that I really appreciate about my job is that it's it's put me in touch with people I always looked up to, and and you're one of those men. Well, that you know that that means a lot, and I, I think you have to be aware. I was always like the young guy. Right? I was like the youngest to do this and the youngest to do that and younger. But I'm very so maybe I'm more sensitive than it were because even though I was young doing a lot of things, I always felt there were things that I was, you know, prevented from doing when I was like nobody wants to put a 24 year old. I was very lucky. I was doing games on TV on Channel 68 back forever ago when I was like 23, 24. But for the most part, people don't want young young guy doing this and young guy doing that. So I've always been very sensitive and looked at the people who are coming, especially when it's like new media. And you see, I've seen my whole life, people get to a certain age and then they just have that, eh, you know, that social media and the online stuff. And they just kind of turn <laughs> their noses up. Like, look at, you know, I, I referenced earlier as a friend of mine, Bill Simmons changed the game because they wouldn't let him play on their field. He grew up the same way, he like worshiping the columnists that wrote for the Globe and the Herald. And, you know, when it was his time, when he was in his 20s and he had something to give, they wouldn't, you know, like they wouldn't let him play on that field. So he moved the game because, yep. you know, and that's what happens is the, the game is going to move. It's weird with, you know, with TV play-by-play. and There's a lot more elements to it. And there's like Facebook Live hits and there's ancillary stuff and online content and all that. But that's changed less. You know, I think you're, you know, your side of the business is certainly changed more. But everybody digests the games in so many different ways. Like, a lot of people listen to us. It's really hard and really appreciate it because in the old days, all you do is turn the radio on and turn the sound down. Well, now it's more complicated than that because how are you watching the game? Are you watching it on your TV? Are you watching it through an Internet feed? Are you watching it on your iPad? Are you watching So you're getting it delivered in so many different ways. You have to pause one to match it up, and it's a lot. People still do it, and we appreciate it, but it's harder. I get that. Um, uh, Ten years ago at the broadcast meeting, they they gave a stat out, said, what percent of people do you think have a device open? I didn't call them devices then, but what percent of people do you think are on their computers when they're watching the games? And I thought it was going to be a pretty high number, but it was like 81%, and that was ten years ago. And yeah. that completely, from that day forward, changed the way I've done my job, and it's why... I do those TV graphics. What I do on Twitter, what I've done for years is I'm trying to use it to basically do a telecast. I'm like supplementing the radio broadcast. with t- can't do TV graphics on the radio broadcast. But I'm supplementing it because I know there are so many people. And the reality is I'm in this very strange place in the media world, which is that, you know, where I, I get what radio is. And this is obviously not my plan to come to the Celtics and do radio for 17 years. That was not the way it was supposed to be. That was not obviously the direction it was supposed to go. But I'm in a very bizarre place, which is I often reach more people on Twitter than I do on the broadcast. You know, because of, especially when something starts bouncing around, it's a, a much bigger audience. So I'm a lot more cognizant and of trying to do the two things at once because I know I've got just as big an audience. Um, there as I do, you know, on, at any given time listening to the game. So it's about it's about evolving. You have to, you know, you guys are what's next. So I look at what you guys are all doing to try to keep up. Because yeah, you're... you do the same thing over and over. You know, evolve or die. I see all these people that who do the things that I do that are the TV, the play-by-play guys, TV, radio, and the league, and they turn their nose up at. Facebook yeah. and Twitter or whatever. Like, I understand the sentiment, but this is All you old bastards goes. have to keep up. Exactly. This is the point. You're only, <laughs> you're only as old as you, you know. So, yeah. Tweeting emojis and whatever is like, you have to try to say, you don't, you don't pretend you're young. 
but you have to be able to have a conversation. Like, I'm doing a game. I'm talking. I have to be able to – a 25-year-old has to be able to relate to some degree with what I'm saying as much as a 65-year-old does, which is hard. But that's the – these are all our consumers. You know, I, I wrote a piece years ago about Twitter followers. Like, I hated that term. Like, you know, you're the king of Siam or something. Like, it's not <laughs> a follower. It's a customer. Like, you're, I, I am serving you. You're a customer of mine, and I'm trying to give you information you want. Like, it, you know, the follower thing is so absurd. Like, it's, Twitter is essentially, you don't annoy me enough that I don't mind having your random thoughts pop onto my phone. Like, that's what it is. So, like, and we call it followers. Well, that's, you know, <laughs> it's kind of a different, a different thing. Let's call it what it is. And so you're trying to, it's just. I like the term followers. Followers that makes me feel important. You know? Well, right, exactly right. Well, that's what most <laughs> most of this stuff is. Well, Twitter really what it is. A lot of social media, but Twitter in particular, is the embodiment of what we've become as a society, which is everybody's talking and nobody's listening. You know, which is what we want. Like we want to just, the world can't wait for our. Thoughts, and if you get really, really, really good at it, at being so self-involved and tweeting <laughs> your, your thoughts and capitalizing, your, maybe you can be president one day. That's something I couldn't. It's, you know, again, I had a great, uh, a great example. Just go back to the beginning. I love podcasts. It's all stuff I don't get to say during the year. That you, you know, we. I had a guy. I don't remember this. This came across your radar. Bill Clinton was at the Game Six in Milwaukee. Yeah, and Max turned into a Justin Bieber fanboy. I, I like did see was, that. I saw that from afar. It was insane. And I'm, I, at one point, I was like, "Hey, Monica, chill. Like, relax. Like, he's you know, he's, I, he had to run down there and take a picture." So when he came up and he was raving, doing his fanboy stuff, and I got a, a tweet from him, and it wasn't like a nasty one. It was like, "Would you, if I asked you a question, would you not block me or whatever?" I said, "Of course." It was actually doing it, and it was like, "Why do you?" I grave about Bill Clinton and whatever, but you say critical things about the president, about about Donald Trump. And I said, when I could not have appreciated the question more, like, that's what this is for. And so we can interact. The beauty to me is that I was always a performer without an audience. You know, you just, they're imaginary. You're just doing the game. But now yeah. you can interact with the people. It's the best. It's awesome when it works like this. And I said how much I appreciated it. And I said, listen, I don't, Say, you know, I will from time to time, like a stand-up, like a, uh, you know, Jay Leno or, or Conan O'Brien or whatever, in the monologue, if something is a pop culture, you know, might make a reference to something and make a joke about it. If I think it's funny, I used to be, you know, you'd do Sarah Palin jokes because they were funny, not because you're, you know, I didn't vote for, I didn't vote for Donald Trump and I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. I voted Libertarian my whole life. But to me, which is even better for me because it means everybody's fair game for a joke. But, you know, Max has been critical of, of the president on the air, and I'm really happy with the exception of one. But I appreciate the dialogue, and it's the whole stick sports thing. We did the first – I don't know if you remember when, when the first game was, the first preseason game. I was so excited because it was a summer of just awful things happening. And yeah. we get to the first game, and I knew Max was going to have a lot of things to say, and obviously I had a lot of things to say, and I was, I was going to open the show talking about how glad I was. We actually have a game to do. We can put all the stuff in the summer behind us. There'll be a time and a place, whatever. But here we go. We have a game. It's going to be great. And the night before the first preseason game was the shooting in Las Vegas. And it was everything sort of crystallized for me at that moment that I get the people that say stick to sports. Sorry. But you can't anymore. It's just not. We're all a part of the same experiences and the same whatever. So, you know, uh, Max makes his jokes, and I, I think I'd made a joke about that night about he said something. I said, well, it depends on what your definition of is is. And, you know, there's there's going to be jokes from time to time. I think the only thing I said all year about the president was after he had come out. There was a speech, I think, when we were in Detroit, and he had talked about his landslide victory in the election, which is less to do with – it's not a political joke. It's a math joke. Like, he lost by 3 million votes, like landslide victory. And I think the next day going to break – the Celtics were up 12 on the Pistons, and I, you know, going to break or something. I said, and the Pistons are down by 12, or as the president would say, you know, a landslide victory. But, it, you know, it, it's hard, again, going back to the beginning, to not acknowledge the world that we're, that we're in. And I think you have to, you have to do it. But yeah. that's the beauty, the beauty of Twitter is people that say, hey, well, did you say this thing, or did you say that thing, or what did you mean when you said this, or whatever. And so this is actually what happened. And, um, I really enjoy it. I try. It's harder the more and more quote-unquote followers you have. 
when I had 5,000, you know, the first couple of years I was doing it, it was a lot more manageable to be able to respond to everybody. Sometimes now it gets a little out of control, but I try very hard to yeah, no, I mean, everybody. Now you have to wait like 15 hours to take a shot at me. Exactly right, because right? there was so much, because there was so much response to that, but I go through the next day and try to one more, everybody. One more question before I let you go, and then I will let you go because I've kept you on for a long time already. If the Celtics had won game seven, what was your send-off going to be? Uh, I, I, I Did you think about that? Idea. Or, or do you kind I'll of... say this. I do not – I don't plan. Um, in 2008, for example, the one that everybody's heard a million times, which is the uh, uh, mission statement, mission accomplished thing. Yeah. I think I opened the, I think I opened the game Sunday by saying uh, two months ago, you know, Banner 18 was the mission statement, mission impossible. And here we, cause we come on right after they play that mission statement. Um, where that came from, and uh, the original monarchy is regaining the throne thing, that was something I wrote for Celtics.com on opening night. And so I was able to bring it back. And then the, the mission statement thing had to do with, I don't know if you remember this, but Tim Wasser died uh, during the finals. And he, had, in fact, the last game he saw, he saw the comeback in game four because he and Mike Barnacle had a conversation about it the next day, the day he died. And on Sunday, on the meet, in the Meet the Press slot, they were running like the best of Tim Wessert stuff. And one of the things they kept showing that they considered like the greatest moment for Tim Wessert was when he had the interview with Donald Rumsfeld and he just kept pressing him on his statement, Mission Accomplished, in Iraq. And he kept pressing him on it. It was this long thing, and that was the Sunday of game five. And so Mission, I wanted to do something for the people in the office in Banner 17 because that was what they named it, you know, five, five years earlier when they'd taken over the team. They said Banner 17. So that was the mission statement. And then for that mission statement, the mission accomplished thing with Wasser popped into my head. Um, but I, if they had won game five, as I assumed they were going to, biggest shock of my life to this day remains that the Celtics did not win game five in 08. Um, it would have been different because it would have been a buzzer beater or whatever. So you can't get an idea of telling the story, but you don't want to plan it too much. Yeah. Uh, I think something I said at the end of the thing I wrote, it probably would have evolved depending on how it happened. Let's say, and remember the game, so my point in 08 was the Celtics were up by 22 and a half. So I yeah. knew, I you, you knew for an hour and a half or two hours that this was going to happen. So that's different from the game you know, happening naturally. I think it probably would have been something like um, – the thing that I wrote at the end of the thing the other night, like we've known for a while that the Celtics are back, but tonight the Celtics are back home in the NBA Finals. Ooh. And I think the other thing, the other well, thing that had been in my head was, um, I don't know what it was. It was something about, oh, a season defined by what had been taken away from them. They'd just taken the Eastern Conference. they finally taken the Eastern Conference away from LeBron James or something like that. I like that. that ballpark. I don't – you have, like, phrases and ideas, but you don't want to – you don't want to plan it out because you want it to be – You want it to be natural, yeah. Yeah, it has to be natural. It's like, like game two. It's like LeBron was – that just pops into my head because using words to describe LeBron James is painting a masterpiece and Marcus Smart just graffitied it up because that – That, that was a good that one. Descri- well, that just describes the two – you know, LeBron was just doing his thing, and then Marcus just does what he does. And like, that actually that made me over. feel bad because I didn't right. write it. I, oh. You know, you're well, just that's, saying that's, that's the goal, isn't it? I mean, I used to, you know, Steve Ashburner writes for NBA.com. Yeah, in the of for a very long time. Steve is a beat writer for the Timberwolves when I first won the league when I was 26 years old or whatever. And here I am doing TV in Minnesota in the NBA, which in doing basketball, which is my number four sport by a wide margin. Coming into the NBA, basketball was a distant four for me. And when I, I get to the league, one of the things I used was if I was saying things during the game that Steve was writing in the story, because he was a veteran guy by that point, the next day in the story, I felt like I had done my job, like I, that I was sort of had the pulse of the game. So, yeah, you use, you know, use stuff like that. Peter Stringer wrote for Celtics.com for years and years. He wrote after 08, because remember they'd started the preseason in Rome in the whatever, and he said, like every great renaissance, this one began in Rome. And I was pissed that I hadn't thought of that. Like I don't yeah, but you know, when you're a writer or a writer have writer tendencies like I do. Like I could care less than like uh you know, my, my girlfriend did a piece with Matt Damon, so I was like pretending to be really jealous about it. I'm like, I don't care that Matt Damon was sexiest man alive or whatever, but it pisses me off that he wrote Goodwill Hunting. Like that pisses <laughs> me off. 
<laughs> that's not fair. I don't, that's you know, you can be one or the other, ever, you can't man. do both. Yeah, it's really, it's, you know, it's up there. Uh, fun trivia fact, then, since you, if you love that movie. Uh, the Sports Hub, which is currently our flagship station, and if I were a betting man, I'd say will be again, but everything's very much up in the air when it comes to where the Celtics will be radio-wise next year, because obviously, yeah, I would love to have us back. Uh, the building where they are moving, which will be the new home of Felber and Maz and all those shows. Do you remember the scene where uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are doing construction and they're sort of talking to each other about, hey, I'll be 50 and we'll still be watching our kids play Little League or whatever and I'll be 50 and that's fine. Ben Affleck's kind of like standing up to him saying like enough of this school and yeah. stuff. And they're, do, they're doing construction. That's the building you're building. Really? Yeah. It's, in, uh, it's near the JFK uh, Library, like near the red line. Down that- there. That's a great. Yeah, it's been it's too. been a radio building in Boston for a long time. Like uh, Country Station was down there, and ninety six nine is down there. But the sports hub is moving there. But that's the uh, wow. Goodwill hunting trivia. Little, little Goodwill hunting time. That, that, that's you that's you got, you're always going to get more. If I, you always had to leave people a little more than they expected. That yeah, that was that was a tidbit I definitely didn't expect. Goodwill <laughs> hunting and ninety eight five the sports hub history knotted together. Thank you for coming on, man. Mm-hmm. I really do appreciate your time. I appreciate this quite a bit. And like I said, I've always, always admired you from the time I was a kid, listening to your old ass. Not not at that point old ass, but now That's old true. Ass. I was young. I was young once. <laughs> this thing will yeah. eat you fast, man. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, man. You'll, yeah, you'll find out doing all you playing all your basketball and whatever. That stuff, you wake up the next day and say, wait a minute, I can't do that anymore. That's yeah. the worst part about getting old. Is like I already learned. That uh, yeah, I, pu- I pulled a muscle in my shoulder. Well, I, that was two weeks ago. It, it doesn't heal anymore. <laughs> I already learned that one. I can promise yep. you that. <laughs> All right, take care of yourself. Man. All right, man, you got it. All right, we'll leave it there. Sean Grandy, ladies and gentlemen, anyone who doesn't typically listen to the podcast, you stupid. If you want to subscribe, though, search for Locked On Celtics wherever you get your podcast iTunes, Spotify, wherever else. We are the only Monday through Friday Celtics podcast. We are the greatest Celtics podcast ever created. And that was fun. I had a good time with Sean. Yeah, J. King and John Corrales. Locked on Celtics. Millie. Rejecting the screen has been retweeted by Kobe, Dame Lillard, and Vince Carter. So it's fair to say you should give it a shot. I'm Noah Kozlov. And I'm Adam Stanko. Rejecting the screen hits your feed every Tuesday and Thursday. On Tuesday, we talk hoops and a little bit of life. On Thursday, we go ISO with a guest. Stories from anyone and everyone who has touched the NBA with tales we promise you've never heard before. Find Rejecting the Screen right now wherever you get podcasts and hit that subscribe button.